Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 23 this morning, but in order to catch the context, uh, I would like us to begin reading at verse 15. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God bless the reading of his word. We're continuing through the book of Colossians this morning. We've arrived to verses 21 through 23. And here Paul is essentially bringing this extended opening section of the letter to its natural conclusion, showing how this glorious, incomparable Christ that we just read about and we we looked at last week, how him and the work that he has accomplished in reconciling all things to God includes even the Colossians themselves. In fact, this morning, if you are here and you have claimed Christ as your Savior, if you are following Him as your Lord, as your King, if you have declared yourself to be a Christian, then Christ has reconciled you to God as well. And so we have hope, not only for ourselves, but for all who are not in Christ today, that when they turn to look at to Christ in faith, they can be reconciled to God as well. And so in these verses, verses 21 through 23, Paul gives what is essentially the universal testimony of every Christian. If you belong to Christ, then this is your life. And what we see is that you are not what you once were. You are not what you once were. So we want to see four things this morning, four things about every Christian's testimony. The first thing we want to see is this. We want to see the Christian's past. The Christian's past. You know, on several television shows over the years, I've heard people talk about the essential goodness of humanity. In fact, sometimes there are entire episodes uh, where the dramatic tension of uh, whether it's a uh, procedural cop drama or uh, even a sitcom, the whole tension of the episode is built around in the face of evil. Can one of the central characters find some good that restores their faith in the essential goodness of humanity? And it makes compelling drama, but it's not just drama. That is the the thinking of much of society. Those aren't just Hollywood lines. I've actually heard people say, well, I just think people are basically good. And if you press them, people will probably say that, yeah, they do bad things. And sometimes people do really bad things. That's just because of their upbringing or the fact that they didn't have a chance by society. 
And all of that is nice, and again, it makes for good television. The problem is, it's completely wrong according to the Bible. The Bible is clear, not just humanity collectively, but every human being that exists is a moral train wreck. They're a moral train wreck. Uh, spiritually speaking, they weren't just hit with the ugly stick, it was broken over their heads. That they are, they're repugnant to God and worthy of eternal damnation. That's how Paul describes the Christian's past as well. You once were alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now let's just spend some time unpacking this for a minute. First of all, he says you were alienated. To be alienated is to be cut off from something, to be separated from it, to exist perpetually in a position of estrangement. Uh, these days on television, you will hear uh, people, commentators and talking heads saying things like, well, that politician has alienated himself from his base. What are they talking about? They're saying that contrary to what he has said or, or she has said or done in the past, uh, they have made decisions, they have uh, made speeches, and, and now the people that once supported them don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. They're upset because they're not living up to uh, the presentation of what they were supposed to be. Now they are at odds with their supporters, moving in different, perhaps even opposite directions. And Paul says to the Colossians, that's what your life used to be like, not just with people, but with God himself. In fact, everybody, even us today, the natural state in which we exist is this. We are alienated from God. We are estranged from our creator, moving in a different direction from the way in which he is moving the world, following our own whims rather than his direction. Paul describes more fully what that looks like. He says, being alienated from God, we are hostile in mind towards him. Now, that's not just our decision-making. That's not just kind of we, we don't think the right way about God, although that's certainly part of it. What Paul has in mind here by saying we are hostile in mind is more than just thinking. It's the entire way in which we, we view the world. It's the things that we love, the things that we care for, the things that we prioritize. Yes, it includes thinking about God, but it's much more than that. It's all that we are as a person. We are hostile in that regard towards God. We aren't interested in God's designs for our life. We aren't interested in living by God's ways. We live by what we believe is right. Rather than view the world and everything in it by, the, by, by way of the one who created it and shaped it, rather than view every issue of life by the one who determines right and wrong, we form our own beliefs. We make our own moral decisions. And we live for no one but ourselves. The result is that our life is characterized, he says, by doing evil deeds. So here's the reality. Evil is not just kind of out there. Evil does not just, just spring up. It doesn't just take place. It comes as a result of people who are alienated from God, hostile in their thinking and living towards Him. That kind of person produces evil deeds. Our flawed, sin-directed thinking and feeling and loving comes to fruition in wrong behavior. And the mistake that we often make, both as Christians and by people who are not Christians, is to believe that our behavior isn't really that bad. If you talk to those same people who say, humanity is basically good, and you say, well, what about a Hitler? Or what about a Stalin? What about a Bin Laden? They will say, well, well, sure, some people are wicked, some people are evil, but that's the exception, that's not the rule. And suddenly, it all becomes a sliding scale, and we begin to look pretty good. 
all of humanity begins to look pretty good compared to those examples. But consider some of the things that God says are evil. Not just what we think are evil, but the things that God himself who determines right from wrong, what does he say is evil? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives just one list of many in the Bible. He says examples of wickedness, of evil, are people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, depending on how we define it, most of us would say brutality, treacherous acts, those things are evil. How about pride? How about ingratitude? How about having the kind of character that is never pleased with anything? You're never satisfied. You're never happy. It's just nah, nah, nah. Complain, complain, complain all the time. Young people. What about disobedient to parents? Paul says all of those things and more are evil in God's sight and deserving of hell. Suddenly we're not looking so good anymore, are we? Suddenly the picture has shifted when we're not just using our own standard of morality, but God's standard. Now, now we look pretty bad. Paul is showing here, not just, not just here, but really the thread that goes to all of his letters. He is trying to show that in our natural state, left to ourselves, there is a complete disconnect between who we are as sinful people and the God who exists in perfect holiness. We are born with a propensity for sin and rebellion, and we engage in that activity every chance we get. And all of this would be bad enough, except our twisted view of the world and our evil deeds aren't just directed towards one another. That's bad. But that's not, that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is it's directed towards God himself. And God being an infinite being of holiness and love and beauty means that when we alienate ourselves from him, when we say we reject you, then we've just offended and sinned against an infinitely, an infinite being. That means the punishment we deserve is an infinite punishment, even eternity in hell itself. Paul says that, that's, that was your past. That's who you were, Colossians. Today, if you are a Christian, that was your past. Whether you knew it or not. I mean, to, to some degree, you know, it's, it's theoretical because I wasn't that bad as a seven and eight year old. Comparatively speaking. But Paul says, I was alienated from God and deserved hell. That was our past. What about our present? What about our present? Paul says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Back in verse 20, we saw God is working to reconcile all things to himself in Christ. And guess what? That includes us. That includes us. But the Colossians were once alienated, even hostile towards him. Now they have been reconciled to him. Remember the context of the letter too. The Colossians are being told, you've got Christ, but he's not enough. You need something more. And Paul is saying, why do you think you need something more? Christ has fully reconciled you to God. You've been alienated to him to now being reconciled to him. You were his enemies and now you are his friend. 
The hostilities between you and God have ended. The peace agreement has been made. The sentence of death has been commuted. You are reconciled to God. And how has he done that? He has done it through Christ. Paul says Christians have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now Paul spent plenty of time in the previous verses, plenty of time laying out the reality that Christ was and is more than a man, he's God. But never think he is less than a man. Think he's more than a man, but don't ever think he's less than a man. As we have said over and over again, as the Bible teaches over and over again, Jesus Christ was both divine and human, fully so. If you saw an example of full humanity, what does it mean to be human? It is Christ. If you want to see an example of what it meant to be God, fully divine, it is Christ. And as the God-man, he went to the cross for his people. Paul uses kind of an odd phrase. We don't see it very often, the body of his flesh. I think he's just trying to distinguish from what he said earlier about the body of the church. He says, in the head of the body, that is the church, he says. And I think here he's saying it's his own, it's his own mortal coil, as Shakespeare would call it. It's his own physical frame that went to the cross and died for his people. Elsewhere, Paul elaborates more on Christ's death that reconciles sinners. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says this. This is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It was in Christ that God brought about reconciliation for sinners. Specifically, he says it was through the cross that he did this, by not counting their trespasses, not counting their sins against them. Our sins were counted against us at one point, and then Christ died in our place, and now they are no longer counted against us. And Paul later in that verse, in that, in that chapter, he explains how that is. Verse 21, we just sang it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That tiny verse gives us the most succinct description of the work of Christ on the cross. Here we have the great exchange that causes us to have peace with God. Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is, for our sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Christ became sinful? Does that mean he actually, he actually became, in that sense, morally culpable for our sin? Did he himself go from perfect Lamb of God, holy and spotless without blemish, to being sin itself? The answer is no. No, the Bible maintains from beginning to end that though he was attempted in every way, he was without sin. That means even on the cross he remained holy. So what does it mean? It means this. He is considered to be sin by God. God imputed, imparted, reckoned our sin to him. Anything bad that we had done, everything bad that we had done, it was considered that Christ himself had done it. So that as he hung on the cross, God saw the very embodiment of rebellion and deceit and wickedness and sin. What did God see? He saw the sins of everyone who would look to God in faith, trusting him for forgiveness. He saw Adam's rebellion. He saw Noah's drunkenness. He saw Abraham's lies about Sarah. He saw Moses' murder of an Egyptian. He saw Rahab's prostitution. He saw Samson's philandering. He saw David's adultery. He saw Peter's 
profane cursing of rejection of Christ under questioning. He saw Paul's zealous persecution and the murder of Christians and on and on down through the ages until today. He saw drug abuse. He saw raging alcoholism, pedophilia, wife beating, committers of genocide and abortion. He saw those that lynched Christians because they had dark skin. He saw gluttony, gluttony, lust, pride, and disobedient children. And in seeing those things, he pulled out, poured out the fullness of his wrath. On the cross, Christ became sin for us. On the cross, the hell that we deserved, the fullness of God's righteous fury went not to us, but to Him who stood in our place. That is the high cost of reconciliation with God. That is the only sufficient payment for God to be satisfied for our sins. This is what it took for us to have peace with God. But God wasn't done. We have in 2 Corinthians 5.21 double imputation. It is not just that our sin is imputed to Christ, but His righteousness is imputed to us. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as God imputed to Christ all the sinfulness in us, so He imputed to us all the righteousness in Him. Him. Now understand, just as Christ Himself did not become sinful on the cross, so in this imputation we do not become righteous. That's the third point we'll look at in a second. Here it is a legal, a forensic, a, a declarative righteousness. It is a position in the heavenly court of God that is ours in Christ. And it's this divine transaction. Our sin to Him, His righteousness to us, that brings reconciliation between sinners and God. In fact, it is the only transaction by which we can be reconciled. Just yesterday, Jason and I were driving back into Bay City after having been visiting some families, and we passed by a Presbyterian church. And I told Jason, I said, well, I said, I said they've lost the gospel. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, here's what the sign said. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Now, what in the world does that even mean? I mean, I Googled it. I Googled it. Eleanor Roosevelt. You're a Christian church, for goodness sake. Put a Bible verse up there or something. You're putting that the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams? How more, how more unchristian can you get? Why? Because Paul says the future belongs to those who see the stink of putrefaction that emanates up from their dreams. Dreams that have soured and become rotten because they have sprung from an evil, wicked, sinful, rebellious heart. Such dreams will only lead us down a path of emptiness and joylessness and ultimately hell because they're leading us away from God. And those to whom the future belongs realize that and they see contrary to where they're going, Christ has paved the way to God through the cross. Therefore, the future belongs to them who look to Jesus and believe, who trust not in themselves, but in what he has done through his reconciling work on the cross. Well, that, my friends, is the great past and present of the Christian, of every Christian who's ever believed, headed for hell and now headed for heaven because we have been reconciled through Christ. But now what do we expect? 
I mean, that's great. That's good. That is awesome. But guess what? We're not in heaven yet. Some of you were saved at a young age. You've got 50 years still in this life. So some of you were just saved, uh, or young, and were just saved this summer. And I trust you've got decades left in this life. You might live to see 100. What are you going to do with yourself? Well, what do you do? What can you expect? This is the last two things I want to see. Third, the Christian's purpose. We've seen the Christian's past, the present. Now we see the Christian's purpose. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to... Oh, great words. If you ever ask a why question, those are the words you want to look for in the Bible because they answer the question. Why did he do this? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God saved the Colossians just as he saved all his people even today for this reason in part that we might be holy and blameless and above reproach. What does that mean? What do those words mean? Well, to be holy is to be set apart from sin. Whereas once our life was consumed with evil deeds, now our life is consumed with sinlessness, with a lack of evil deeds. We are moved out of the realm of living for ourselves into the realm of living for God. And we see elsewhere, as God's people... We are meant to be a holy people because God himself is holy. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't live like you used to. Don't live in the past. But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's pretty clear. What's God's will for your life? Be holy. Right? So is this decision going to make you holy? Yes or no? No? Then that's not God's will. Is this decision going to increase your holiness? Yes, then you better do it. Simple as that, right? But, we, but again, we go back and we live in the past, don't we? We do the very thing that we're told not to do, and that is we are conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Too often we say, well, I, I, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm living in the present, and then guess what? We start making decisions and start thinking like we're back in the past. And so the, the, the writers of the New Testament are constantly calling us. We'll even see in Colossians in a, in a few weeks, Lord willing. He says, put off the old self and its passions and put on the new self that you have in Christ. Don't live in the past. Live in the present. Live in Christ. And that's what, that's what we see here. We are called to be holy because God himself is holy. More than just holy, though, we are, set, we are meant to be blameless. This is holiness at, at the end of all things. Like the blameless offering of Israel under the Old Covenant, there should be no fault found within us. No fault. No blemish, no spot, no wrinkle. That is, that is the, the life that we are to be aiming towards. No blemish of sin, no stain of transgression, no hint of unholiness. Finally, Paul says that we are to be above reproach before him. Do you know what that means, to be above reproach? That means no one can bring a charge against you. No one can bring an accusation against you. So when someone says, well, he's a liar. Everybody hears and says, he's never told a lie in a day in his life. What are you talking about? He can't, he can't be lying. You're the liar. Can't bring a charge. Why is that helpful? Because that, frankly, is one of Satan's primary attacks against the Christian. He is the accuser of God's people. He's not just the adversary. He is the accuser. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, just read Job, chapters 1 through 3, and you'll see exactly what that means. More practically in our life, though, it's probably been your experience. It was certainly Paul's. It's certainly been mine. 
and many other Christians that when we stumble into sin or perhaps dive headlong into it, the first thing that we hear is Satan saying, look at you, you're pathetic. You call yourself a Christian, that's how you act? What a joke. What a joke. Why would you even think that you're one of God's children and you, you pull that kind of stuff? Give me a break. Give me a break. But Paul says we're blameless, and that means the song that we just sung can be the reality of our lives. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I look to heaven and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. That's why we want that above reproach. We want that blamelessness. We want that not just position in Christ. But also we want that really for our lives. We want this in actuality. You see, the reality is at this point it's just positional. It's just a declaration. Someone goes missing for years. Let's say they were missing in action in overseas combat. And the government issues a death certificate. So the family can have a funeral and move on. And then a year later, he comes home. Was he really dead? No, obviously he's alive, right? We're happy for that. Well, in a similar way, but with more hope than that, we are declared righteous. But that doesn't mean we're righteous. I mean, who, is, who here is going to stand and say, I, I live a sinless and perfect life? Give me five minutes. I bet I can make you get angry at me. Bet I can do it. I might have to repent afterwards, but I bet I can do it. That, 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 that's not the experience of our life. Positionally, we know we are, we are righteous in Christ. But guess what? God is also working to make that be a reality in our life. This transition from, from sinner in its fullest sense to saint in its fullest sense is progressive over time. World War II officially ended with Japan's surrender on September 2nd, 1945. But if you know anything about history, you didn't know that wasn't the end of the, that wasn't the, end of the war. It, it didn't end neatly. At its height, the Japanese Empire had more than 20 million square miles of land and sea. And there were some soldiers who were out there in isolated regions who fought for years after the formal surrender of Japan. Some were just simply unaware that the war had ended. Others refused to believe that it had ended. Some hid in the jungles alone. Others fought in groups and continued to, to, to make attacks and conduct guerrilla warfare. Likewise, the victory Christ won on the cross was final and complete. But do not make the mistake of believing sin is completely gone. In fact, just the opposite is true. Although the war against sin has been won, the battle still goes on until Christ returns. When then he creates a new heaven and a new earth of which we will be a part. Then the, the, the progress inch by inch that we were making will be fully and finally complete. The guilt and the power of sin have been dealt with. Nevertheless, the pollution of sin remains and will only be cleansed over the course of time. Therefore, finally, we must see the Christian's perseverance. We must see the Christian's perseverance. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, what in the world has he just done? Paul has just been laboring to show God is the one who saves us. We haven't saved ourselves. He is the one who sent Christ in the world. He is the one who commissioned him to offer his life for sinners. He was the one who found his death sufficient to appease his wrath. He was the one who brought Christ back to life. He was the one who sent the Spirit in the world to call people to himself. God is the one who saves. And now all of a sudden Paul says, it's only true if you continue in the faith. Paul, what in the world are you doing to us? Do you want us to believe that we are ultimately responsible for our salvation? That God got us in? That we must keep ourselves in? No, he doesn't want you to think that at all. He doesn't want you to think that at all. What he means is simply this. Not everyone who says, I'm a Christian, is a Christian. Not everyone who sincerely believes in their heart they are a Christian, is a Christian. We say, where where does Paul get that? Jesus Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Don't don't wiggle out of that so fast. Listen to what he is saying. Dramatic displays of power. Seemingly godly power. Mighty prophetic words. The casting out of demons and other mighty works. All in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't know you. I never knew you. That means he didn't know him at one time and then said, I don't like you and stopped knowing him. He says, I never knew you. There was never a time when you were my brother and sister before God. I was never your elder brother. You were never a child of my father. You were never a sheep in my flock. Sobering words, not just for ourselves, but to those around us whom we have seen begin well and are now suddenly nowhere to be seen. Understand, our ultimate rest lay in Christ. He is the one who saves us. But, if he has saved us, If we have believed in him, then his spirit was sent into our hearts. And therefore, there should be evident progress in holiness. Paul says specifically, we will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. If you've been reconciled to God through Christ, then your course is set. It doesn't mean that you won't sin. But it means that you are not going to shift back and forth between trusting Christ and trusting something else to bring you to God. Rather, the stable, steadfast hope that we have in this life comes from the gospel itself, a message we have already heard. It is the gospel of Christ that brought us into the family of God. It is the gospel of Christ that will take us all the way home to God himself in heaven. It's the gospel that reminds us that we are God's people. It assures us of his love and motivates us to return that love back to God. What does that look like? Holy life. Obedience. Jesus himself, if you love me, keep my commands. Some of you like the book, Five Love Languages. Well, here's God's. Obedience. 
obedience. It is not earning love. It is displaying love. Thus the application of the doctrine of salvation is the pursuit of holiness. How do we do that practically? I mean, it's one thing to say, live a holy life. How do we do it, right? I mean, that's, that's the trick, isn't it? Not just, we, we, I think most of us have pressed, oh yeah, I should live a holy life. Now, how are you doing it? Well, first of all, you don't take sin lightly. I mean, we have just seen the offense that sin is before God. Even as God's people, we should not take it lightly. Just the opposite. We take it seriously and even acknowledge it. We acknowledge, as one Puritan said, the sinfulness of our sin. Another uh, Puritan prayed, and he said, help me repent. He said, no, he didn't say help me. He said, I need to repent of my repentance. What did he mean? He means he treated sin too flippantly. He, he commits this sin against it, a holy God, his heavenly Father, who offered up his, his, his own Son to bring us to him. It's like, yeah, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. He walks off. He says, I need to repent of that repentance, because that wasn't repentance. Thomas Watson, another period, I don't know why I've got the periods in my head all of a sudden, but it's not a bad thing. Thomas Watson says, repentance is the vomit of the soul. Now, there's, there's a line we're told not to cross in preaching class, and I, I was going to tell you, I'm going to get real close to that line right now, okay? Uh, I want you to imagine the last time you vomited. Now, I've seen other people vomit, and sometimes just kind of like, and it's done. And you're like, wow, that, that, that was it? That's not me, okay? Uh, that's not me. I mean, we are talking ruptured blood vessels in my eyes. We, we, we are talking death grips on the porcelain throne as I am heaving, heaving, heaving. Okay? So what does Thomas Watson... See, I think I'm about to cross the lane here. <laughs> Why did Thomas Watson say repentance is the vomit of the soul? Because vomit in that way is the hardest thing physically for us to do. I mean, every system in your body is working in reverse. You realize you can hang upside down on the monkey bars and drink a glass of water and not choke? God has designed your body in that way. The muscles go down and suddenly everything is coming up. Acid that's meant to stay in your gut is now shooting out of your mouth and your nose and everywhere. It's not good. Likewise, spiritually, the most difficult thing for us to do is truly repent of our sin. To truly see it as vile, as the upchuck that comes when we're sick before God and get rid of it. And say, oh God, how could I have done that after all you have done for me? How could I have, how could I have gone down that path? How could I have turned away from you, lost faith in you? So that you were worth less than that sin. That's what true repentance is. And that should mark us out as the people of God. Because we realize what our past has been. We realize what God has done for us in the present. And we realize what the purpose of that present salvation is. Therefore, we are to persevere in holiness. It begins by not taking our sin lightly. The second thing is, we've got to get close to God. We've got to get close to God. When Isaiah saw... God high and lifted up. What did he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. When Job was blasted by God's glory from the storm, he cried out, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Habakkuk saw a vision of God's power, he said, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Pastor Chris Lungard explains it like this. He says, God's terrible majesty is radiation. 
It x-rays a soul and shows that it's gorged with sin. A soul sees that God is what God is like in his glory, sees what what it is like in its sickness, and buries its face in the dirt. Then the healing starts. God's radiating majesty kills the rotten marrow of sin and replaces it with humility. A heart humbled by God's terrible majesty can begin its recovery and grow strong. If we want to put sin to death in our hearts, we have to swallow the strongest doses of God's terrible majesty we can. If we want to feel the depths of our sin so we can see it and fight it and be sustained with a vision of something more glorious, more satisfying than that with which we are tempted, then we need to begin exposing ourselves to the glory of God. And we do that by the word of God primarily. Yes, you can go out and you can behold creation, but it's here that we see the fullness of his glory. We see his supreme holiness and his love and his mercy. We see his beauty and his long-suffering patience. We will meditate long, if we meditate long and hard on God's glory from his word, then we will be not only driven to repentance, but we will be encouraged to love and trust God all the more as we are reminded again and again and again of the gospel. Let me end with this, a question. Why didn't God just stop with the past and the present? Why does he have the purpose that he does and why does he call us to persevere? Have you ever thought about that? The answer is this, full and final reconciliation can't take place if we're just forgiven of our sins and not made righteous. Because God says that our relationship with him doesn't terminate in this existence. A day is coming. Not just when we're disembodied spirits awaiting the return of Christ upon death. No, a final day is coming. When Christ himself returns and this long dead form is given new, superior, glorified life and our spirits inhabit this glorified body, and we are meant to stare the glory of God directly in the face day after day after day after day for all eternity, basking in the glory of his love towards us. And the only way that's possible is if he doesn't just declare us righteous, but he makes us righteous. And so he begins now. Little by little, chipping away stony, rocky, self-centered hearts and giving us hearts that beat with love and fleshiness for him. Like, like Moses off the mountain, we begin not with fading glory, but with increasing glory as we walk through this life. So that on the final day of our resurrection, when we stand face to face with our Savior, we will reflect perfectly the glory of Christ, the one who loved us and died to reconcile us to God. How much more should we long then for holiness in this life? knowing that is the reason God desires it for our life with him in the next. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're so thankful for Christ. Father, we have seen our past and our present, but I worry that we have not glimpsed our future. We have not adequately understood the purpose to which you have called us and the perseverance that is required to attain it. So I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, God. 
Help us to see that majestic glory that both brings us low and causes us to rise again in love and faith and confidence in you. May you do this, Father, that we might be the perfect and holy bride without blemish that your son deserves when he returns for us. It's in his name that we pray.